You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on the English explorer James Cook. In this episode, we are going to begin Cook's first voyage of exploration, which will take him to the South Pacific and eventually around the world. You can see a map of Cook's route on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Before we start, I want to talk about our source material. On all of Cook's voyages, he kept a detailed journal. Some of the other men on this ship kept journals as well, including naturalist Joseph Banks. These are all incredible sources for scholars and myself. All of this material is, however, not without issues. For Cook's first voyage, the initial publication of his journal was combined with notes from Banks and others. Essentially, all the information was given to one man, John Hawksworth, who wrote up his own narrative. This did not thrill Cook, and it led to an uneven publication. There were other books published about Cook's life, but it wasn't until 1955 that Cook's full journals were actually published by New Zealand historian John Beaglehole. The journals were released in four volumes and consist of more than 3,300 pages. It was quite the effort by Beaglehole, who also wrote a biography of Cook. However, Beaglehole, and many others who have written about Cook, idolizes his subject and glosses over the darker parts of Cook's voyages. But we have other sources to draw on as well to balance our view of Cook which is pretty much what we do with any of our explorers. In the end, I have a lot of great material to draw on for this podcast, but know that some stuff can be contradictory. Also, there's a lot of detail, and I mean a lot, that I don't share. Anyhow, none of this is a problem, just standard operating procedure for the show. I'll share what I think is relevant for the series and try to present the narrative in the most accurate and interesting way possible. Alrighty, let's get started. It was the summer of 1768, 39-year-old James Cook had recently been appointed commander of the Endeavour and gotten a promotion to first lieutenant as well, which the British, I am told, pronounce lieutenant. Anyhow, Cook's published mission was to sail the Endeavour to Tahiti and let the science team observe the transit of Venus, the rarest of predictable astronomical phenomena. This was a great opportunity to advance the world's scientific knowledge. But Cook had two other jobs as well, both labeled secret by the British Admiralty. First, after the transit of Venus was observed, Cook was to head south in search for Terra Australis, the continent that many people believe existed nearer to the southern pole. After determining the existence or not of the southern continent, Cook was then to go to New Zealand and map that area. He was also to explore any new islands or lands that he encountered in his travels. Any other orders he had were off the book. 
One area not mentioned in Cook's orders was eastern Australia, which was unvisited to date by Europeans. But the Admiralty likely told Cook to poke around there if the opportunity arose. Anyhow, Cook's job in the summer of 1768 was to get the Endeavour ready to depart for the expedition. The Endeavour, nearly 100 feet long and 30 feet wide, was a sturdy vessel whose characteristics were familiar to Cook, as she was similar in build to the transports that Cook worked on before joining the Royal Navy. These ships, called cats, were built to withstand the violent waters of the North Sea. They were made to take abuse. Plus, they had a lot of cargo space. All of this made the Endeavour a perfect vessel for the upcoming voyage. Endeavour was armed with ten four-pound cannons, as well as a dozen small swivel guns. Not all of the four-pounders were placed above deck. Some were stowed below, which provided extra ballast, and would only be brought up top if needed. As for the swivel guns, they were mounted at various spots around the vessel, and could be attached to the ship's smaller boats. These smaller boats numbered six, and included a longboat, a pinnace, a yawl, a barge, and two rowboats. They were of different sizes and configuration, and used in different circumstances. Otherwise, Cook would supervise the refit of the ship, which cost the Admiralty about 3,000 pounds. He went to the docks and personally made sure that the work done on Dever was to his specifications and properly done. This included adding extra cabins for the civilians, making sure seams were caulked properly, and replacing rotted wood. Corruption was rampant in the naval yard, and contractors were notorious for cutting corners to make an extra dollar. Thus, Cook stayed on top of the refitting process to ensure that things were done correctly. And while the ship was prepped for sailing, there were three other major things on the agenda. This included assembling a crew, a science team, and obtaining provisions for the voyage. Let's start with the crew. The crew would comprise of 73 sailors and 12 marines. Cook and most of the crew did not care for the marines. They were seen as sullen bullies who sat around waiting while others did the work. But Cook understood why they were essential to the ship's complement. If shooting happened, it was those guys who would be in the front ranks. The Endeavour's second-in-command was 38-year-old Lieutenant John Gore, a 16-year naval veteran who had been born in America. Gore had already circumnavigated the globe twice. Between 1764 and 1766, he had circled the world aboard the HMS Dolphin under Commodore John Byron. His second circumnavigation, also done on the Dolphin, was under Samuel Wallace, who had just returned a few months earlier. It was Wallace's expedition that had been the first European ship to reach Tahiti, called King George's Island by the British. Wallace's reports of the island convinced the Admiralty it was the perfect place for Cook to go to record the transit of Venus. Gore was a perfect complement to Cook. The latter had crossed the Atlantic ten times, so he knew his stuff. But Cook had never been to the Pacific. Gore would thus be an outstanding resource for the upcoming expedition. Gore, by the way, will be a major figure in two of Cook's three voyages. He and Cook were similar in age and got along well, and the crew liked Gore, who was a cheerful, enterprising, and efficient officer. The expedition's third-in-command was Lieutenant Zachary Hicks, a 29-year-old with command experience. Some other men of note include Robert Molyneux, the ship's master. Molyneux had circumnavigated the globe with Wallace and was considered good at his job, but he liked to drink, and thus Cook did not completely trust the man. Another person I'll mention is Seaman Isaac Smith. Just 16 years old, Smith was the nephew of Cook's wife, Elizabeth. Smith was also an apprentice surveyor. Perhaps ironically, one man that Cook objected to be an assigned to Endeavour was the cook, John Thompson. Thompson only had one hand, and Cook thought he would be a liability. Cook's request for a replacement was denied, and Thompson would have no problem performing his assigned duties. 
There were many other men on the Endeavor, but I'll wait to introduce them until they arise in our narrative. But know that the crew was a tough lot, but on the whole, good by Royal Navy standards. The reason for this was that England was at peace, and men were eager for steady work. A two-year expedition to the Pacific promised that, and it didn't hurt that the men from the Dolphin, who had just got back from Tahiti, were telling tales of the local taverns about an exotic land filled with beautiful women who wore hardly any clothing, and who were eager to make love with even the most wretched-looking sailor at the drop of a hat. And so that's a bit about the crew of Endeavour. Next, let's talk about the civilian contingent. These men were known as supernuminaries and led by 25-year-old Joseph Banks, a naturalist and botanist. Banks, who was rich, was essentially funding most of the scientific part of the expedition, reportedly to the tune of 10,000 pounds. He also brought with him four of his servants and some hunting dogs, a pair of greyhounds. Banks was a fascinating man. While young, rich, and charming, he was also extremely passionate about botany. He had gone to Newfoundland on a natural science expedition, collecting countless specimens. One of the officers with that party, Lieutenant John Phipps, said this of Banks, quote, He works night and day and lets the mosquitoes eat more of him than he does of any kind of food, all through eagerness, end quote. Banks, by the way, did not care a whit about the transit of Venus. He was a naturalist and botanist, and he wanted to get his hands on plants and animals. He didn't care about the stars. He was, however, very interested in Terra Australis. The idea of discovering a new continent and all the cool stuff it would have was a dream for the man. Along with Banks, some of the key people I'll mention include Charles Green, a famous astronomer, Daniel Solander, a respected Swedish naturalist and botanist, and a close friend of Banks, plus artist Sidney Parkinson. I mention Parkinson because he was a young, talented artist, and he would make literally thousands of drawings during the upcoming expedition. His work is truly outstanding, and I put a link to some of his drawings on the site. Otherwise, there are a couple of other botanists, a secretary, an assistant astronomer, and a second artist. Cook, by the way, had no say in the makeup of the supernuminaries. He was told, these people are coming with you, make do. And Cook would make do, although he would have some minor headbutting early with Banks, as the latter tried to exert his influence on how the expedition was going to be run. When he boarded the ship for the first time, Banks was shown to his cabin and announced it was too small, and said he would sleep in the ship's great cabin. The great cabin was where the ship's captain and officers met and poured over maps and talked about whatever officers talked about. It was often a hub of activity on the ship. Cook agreed to Banks using the great cabin as his sleeping quarters, but made it very clear that it would be taken over by the officers when needed. No matter, next on our list is supplies, gear, and provisions. For the science team, there was a pair of telescopes, thermometers, an astronomical clock, a barometer, artist supplies, and all the stuff needed to catalog and preserve the many plant, insect, and animal specimens they intended to gather on the journey. As for the rest of the ship, there would be provisions for 18 months. This included 250 barrels of beer, 6,000 pieces of pork, 4,000 pieces of beef, 9 tons of bread, 5 tons of flour, 3 tons of sauerkraut, a ton of raisins, and varying amounts of cheese, peas, oils, sugar, and oatmeal. There were also more than 60 barrels of rum and brandy. Regarding the rum, this leads me down two sidetracks. Sidetrack 1. In the Royal Navy, each man received half an imperial pint of alcohol per day, half at noon, the other half at 6 p.m. If there was plenty of water available, the rum ration was often mixed with it, so the men wouldn't drink it too quickly. This was called grog. This also prevented the sailors from saving up their ration for several days, and then drinking it all at once, and getting blackout drunk. As a note, an imperial pint consists of 20 ounces of liquid. 
If you walk into a bar and order whiskey or vodka straight up or on the rocks, a bartender will pour you two ounces of your booze of choice. That means these sailors were getting five drinks per day, and the alcohol was usually very strong. And they worked hard to get more. There were double rations for special days and celebrations, and men would find ways to steal extra or make swaps with their fellow sailors. And thus, you can see why there was a drinking problem in the Navy. Anyhow, that leads me down sidetrack number two. The rum that the sailors received was supposed to be at least 94 proof, meaning more than 50% alcohol. Sailors, to test their rum, would mix a little gunpowder with the alcohol and try and light it. When it flared up, it proved it wasn't watered down. But if it just smoked a bit and went out, it meant the rum was less than 50% alcohol. Bottom line, don't mess with the cruise rum ration. Sidetrack number two, done. In addition to all the provisions and gear, the ship was crowded with animals, most to be slaughtered along the way to provide the crew fresh meat. But there were cats to catch the rats, hens for eggs, and even pet monkeys. Also, there was a goat specifically for the officers, which provided them milk for the journey. And that brings us down another sidetrack. This goat had been with Samuel Wallace when he had circumnavigated the world, providing milk for Wallace and his officers. Well, the goat was so good at her job, Cook brought her on his expedition, and thus she ended up circumnavigating the world a second time. Amazingly, the nanny goat continued to produce milk throughout her two voyages. The goat's name is not known, and she is often called the Traveled Goat. Sidetrack done. So with all the personnel, gear, provisions, and updates to the ship wrapping up, it was time to set sail. Cook's orders were to go to Tahiti to view the transit of Venus. As noted, Samuel Wallace had just returned to England in May in 1768, and after his reports, the Royal Society determined the island was a perfect place to record the transit. The plan was to sail from England to the Portuguese island of Madeira, which is west of Morocco. From there, they would go to Rio de Janeiro in South America, and then head down the continent's eastern coast. After that, the ship would go around Cape Horn and into the Pacific, and then west to Tahiti. On August 7, 1768, Cook said goodbye to his pregnant wife and headed to Plymouth with Endeavour. There, more supplies were loaded, final repairs done, and the crew and civilians gathered for their departure. By the way, Cook's wife would give birth to a son, Joseph, three weeks later. However, the boy would only live a few weeks. On August 19th, the Endeavour was ready to put to sea, so Cook gathered his crew and read out loud the 36 clauses in the Articles of War, which detailed such things as punishment, responsibilities, and pay. Now, bad weather would delay the ship's departure for a week, but on August 26, 1768, the Endeavour, with 94 souls on board, would put to sea. Little did they know that they were setting out on one of the greatest voyages of discovery in history. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The voyage from England to Madeira was relatively uneventful. The weather was not good, but the winds were favorable, and Endeavour made 1,400 miles, or 2,250 kilometers, in just 17 days. Many of the civilians struggled to get their sea legs and spent the first couple of weeks in their cabins fighting seasickness, but by the time the ship reached Madeira, everyone was acclimated to life at sea. On Madeira, Portuguese officials welcomed Cook and his men. The ship took on more supplies, including beef, chickens, 3,000 gallons of wine, 2,000 pounds of onions, 10 tons of fresh water, and even a live steer, which was to be slaughtered later for fresh beef. Madeira also offered the scientific team a chance to do their thing. Banks and the other botanists, as well as the artists, had a field day drawing and collecting more than 700 specimens. It is a sign of things to come, and I can't stress enough that Cook's voyage, for all of its amazing geographic discoveries and feats, will also turn out to be one of the greatest voyages in the annals of natural science. Banks and his team will bring home tens of thousands of plant, animal, and insect specimens, and the artist will produce thousands of amazing drawings of the people, places, flora, fauna, and animals on their journey. Anyhow, at Madeira, the Endeavour would have her sails and rigging repaired, and her hull was caulked and repainted. The ship would also suffer its first casualty when Alex Weir, the ship's quartermaster, drowned after getting tangled up with a rope and an anchor of one of the small boats. The Endeavour departed Madeira on September 19th, heading southwest for Brazil. With a long ocean voyage ahead of them, a couple of notes. First, Cook would prove to be very particular about the cleanliness of his ship. He had the men work hard, and often, to keep the Endeavour as clean as possible. Part of this was to keep the men busy, but Cook also understood that a clean ship would mean healthier men and a vessel with fewer problems in the long run. Second item was diet. Cook was incredibly strict about the diet of the crew, as well as the officers. He was determined to avoid things such as scurvy, a.k.a. a lack of vitamin C. To this end, he believed a variety of foods was important, as well as certain kinds. Cook brought along a lot of sauerkraut, as it was thought to help fight scurvy, and he was right, as it was high in vitamin C. Another thing he insisted on was fresh meat, not just the salted stuff. And again, Cook was right. Fresh meat often has small amounts of vitamin C. Not a lot, but enough for a person to not get scurvy. It's how people like the Inuit can survive in the extreme north, where there are no greens or produce available for half the year. Fresh meat gives them the vitamin C they need to stay healthy. As a note, foods that help fight scurvy are called antiscorbutic. Fresh fruit is the best antiscorbutic, but fruit didn't last long on a ship during this era. The problem with this diet was that many sailors were stubborn and set in their ways, and they thought food such as sauerkraut was revolting which I agree with, but that's beside the point. Anyhow, Cook ordered the men, this included the officers and crew, to eat all the foods issued, but some refused. 
But Cook wasn't messing around. He expected orders to be followed. The result was a public flogging and several men were charged with mutiny for refusing to follow orders. They were given a dozen lashes for their obstinance. This was really the only punishment that Cook could use. He couldn't really lock up the men. They were needed to help run the ship. So a painful lashing with the cat was the answer. The cat, by the way, is the cat o' nine tails, a sort of whip with nine separate rope tails. Thus one swing of the cat got you nine smacks. It was not fun. The only other penalty Cook could impose on someone was the death penalty, but that was for murder or mutiny. Anyhow, the voyage across the Atlantic was relatively uneventful. As the ship crossed the equator, the temperature and the humidity soared. Books and leather got moldy and metal rusted. Endeavor would have to endure the doldrums, basically an area with no wind and weak currents, meaning a ship just sits there and roasts in the sun. It was a bit maddening, but bearable as it, thankfully, didn't last too long. One moment of levity occurred when the ship crossed the equator. There was a tradition that said that anyone who was crossing it for the first time had to get hitched to a rope and dunked in the ocean. This included everyone on the ship, civilians, officers, and seamen alike. The only way to avoid the dunking was to sacrifice four days of grog. Joseph Banks elected the latter, as did Cook. Many of the sailors, however, took their dunking stoically rather than give up their rum. The event was, of course, turned into a big party, everyone drinking too much. Thus, most of the crew ended up drunk and cheering on each man who got dropped into the ocean. Those wacky sailors. The Endeavor sighted the Brazilian coast on November 8th. The ship was greeted by some local fishermen who swapped their entire catch for just under a pound of English currency paid for by Joseph Banks. Banks turned the catch over to the ship's cooks for a feast that night. Endeavour would reach Rio de Janeiro on November 14th. Brazil was a Portuguese colony, and Cook expected a friendly welcome, just like he had received in Madeira. He figured he'd add food, water, and other supplies, and the naturalists would be able to explore the area and collect samples. However, he would have no such luck. Brazil was one of the last colonies of Portugal's once vast empire, and the local viceroy, Marques de Azambuja, had been warned to be suspicious of the British as they were looking to expand their overseas empire. In Cook's story of going to observe the transit of Venus, ha, who sends a warship to do science work? This reeked like yesterday's sauerkraut. Thus, the Viceroy treated Endeavour and her men as spies. Although, to be fair, he was suspicious of pretty much any foreigner, not just the British. Cook would end up sparring with the Viceroy, trying first to be polite and logical, then frustrated, then outraged. But Azambuja was implacable. The English were not welcome. Even Joseph Banks, who was eager to go explore the Brazilian countryside, was thwarted by the Viceroy, despite turning on all his charm and playing all his nobility cards. All that Banks and his team could do was go ashore a few times in the night and collect a limited number of specimens, woefully inadequate in his eyes. And thus, the three-week stay in Rio was not fruitful. No supplies, no chance to relax on shore, just frustration. To top it off, one sailor, Peter Flowers, fell into the harbor from the ship and drowned. Alcohol was believed to be related to his death. He was replaced by a local Portuguese sailor, eager for some adventure and steady pay. Also, one crewman tried to desert, but was caught in the process. He was flogged for his efforts. In the end, Cook would head south on December 7th, feeling humiliated by the Portuguese viceroy and without any additional supplies. Thankfully, the ship was pretty well stocked, so it would not affect the expedition. From Rio, the voyage down the eastern coast of South America was a long one, over 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers. Along the way, the temperature slowly dropped until the men on deck were forced to wear jackets due to the cold. 
and no man was allowed to be on watch for more than four hours due to the frigid weather and the storms. We cannot forget about the storms. The further south the endeavor went, the worse the weather got. On Christmas Day, the entire crew celebrated with extra portions of rum, which got everyone roaring drunk. Joseph Banks would write of the day, quote, Christmas Day, all good Christians, that is to say, all hands, get abominably drunk, so that at night there was scarce a sober man on the ship, end quote. Banks, by the way, was always persistent regarding his desire to go ashore and collect more plant and animal specimens. But Cook kept his eye on the prize. He needed to get to Tahiti, not linger on the South American coast. Banks had hoped to land in the Falkland Islands, but Cook only took him close enough to see the archipelago, which frustrated Banks terribly. They did, however, get their first sighting of a penguin. Now, Banks would still be able to collect samples from the ship, birds and insects, whatever came his way. On December 30th, a swarm of butterflies and moths and other insects were caught in the ship's sails. In exchange for a bit of rum, Banks got some of the sailors to help out by collecting as many as they could. Some of the samples would turn out to be new to science. All of this demonstrates the passion and curiosity that Banks, and the rest of the civilians, had for the natural sciences. Banks was known to stand on the deck of the ship, hours at a time in bad weather, just to collect some bugs and moths or whatever. He may have been a rich dandy, but he was not afraid to work hard at his profession. In early January 1769, the Endeavour would approach Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. Tierra del Fuego is an island, and the Strait of Magellan runs along its northern shore. It is the southernmost point in South America. Cook would lead the ship to the south of Tierra del Fuego. There you find another short channel, called the Lemaire Strait. This was a passage between Tierra del Fuego and Isla de los Estados. This channel is not long, only about 15 to 20 miles, and once through, a ship just had to keep going around the tip of South America, aka Cape Horn, to reach the Pacific. Why take this route instead of the Strait of Magellan? The answer was speed. The Strait of Magellan is a 350-mile, or 565-kilometer, maze. It takes time and patience to make the passage, although it's safer than just going around Cape Horn, which often was wracked by storms. Cook had studied the logs of other ships sailing through the Magellan Passage and decided he could save weeks by going around Cape Horn. Thus, Cook would try to get Endeavour through the Lemaire Strait, but the winds repeatedly forced him back. He had never encountered such ferocious waters in his life. Finally, on January 15th, the winds calmed and Cook made another run into the strait. Endeavour would make it. Once on the other side of the strait, Cook anchored in a bay and let some of the men go ashore. The English were quickly visited by the local natives, who wore sealskin clothing and lived under terrible hardships. The English would give them gifts and invite them onto Endeavour, while the crew went and gathered timber and water. From this and future encounters, Cook would give some of the best and most detailed descriptions of the natives of Tierra del Fuego from the time period. Cook would call this place the Bay of Success, but he was wrong to apply that moniker. And that's because Joseph Banks would end up leading a group of civilians ashore, along with two sailors, eager to find new plants and animals. The team quickly collected more than 100 specimens, and then, with the crew busy, Banks decided to head inland for more samples. He sent Cook a message saying he'd be back by dinner. Amongst Banks' crew was a couple of the scientific team, plus two of his servants and his two dogs. When they departed, the skies were clear. But soon Banks and his group found themselves in a tangle of trees and brush and mired in bogs, and then the clouds moved in. The temperatures dropped, and in short order, snow began to fall. Alexander Buchan, one of the expedition's artists, would have an epileptic fit. But Banks would push on, set on collecting more specimens, leaving Buchan with his two servants, Tom Richmond and George Doralton. 
Banks would give the men some rum to keep them warm. The result was a disaster. The two servants would get drunk and end up passing out in the freezing cold, and in the night it got even colder. In the end, Richmond and Doralton would freeze to death. Buchan would survive, as well as the rest of the group. Daniel Solander, Banks's friend and fellow botanist, would almost die after collapsing in the cold, but Banks would manage to get him up and keep him moving. All the survivors were in bad shape by morning. For Banks, this was a disaster. In a lot of ways, he had approached the expedition as the clear leader, even more so than Cook. He was a gentleman of the highest order. People, he felt, would naturally gravitate towards him as a leader, and to an extent, they did. But Banks' foolish excursion had cost two men their lives. All the charm and money in the world couldn't explain that away. Whatever the men thought of Cook, he would never let that sort of thing happen to a member of the crew. And to be honest, the rank and respect Banks thought he was due had been wavering as the ship had moved further and further away from the civilized world of England. Titles and money meant less and less as you ventured into the unknown. In some ways, this helped solidify the relationship between Banks and Cook. No more would Banks push or prod or try to exert his influence in a way that put himself above Cook. Instead, he could just focus on being who he was, which was good for all parties. Cook became more integrated with the civilians after this, attending their meetings and talking shop with them over dinner. He ended up enjoying and finding interest in what they were doing. While not a scientist, he was well-versed in many subjects, including mathematics and astronomy. Endeavour would sail from the Bay of Success on January 21st and enter the Pacific the next day. Cook made good time, thanks to favorable winds and calm seas. Now, to this point, Cook had pretty much been focused on Tahiti, but he felt that he had some time to play with, and thus instead of heading directly west, he gave orders to go south. Cook knew that he was probably at the furthest southern point he would ever attain on this voyage. Plus, the weather was uncharacteristically good. So why not go south? Perhaps they would find some proof of Terra Australis. It was, after all, part of his mission. Also, Cook looked at the reports of other mariners and felt that by going south at this point, he could catch better currents toward the South Seas. The currents along the western coast of South America tended to sweep you directly north, while Cook wanted to go northwest. And so Endeavour would venture south for five days, and they would find nothing, just a lot of cold. To be honest, Cook doubted the existence of Terra Australis, and this only reinforced his opinion. Endeavour would turn about and set sail to the northwest, the destination Tahiti, a journey of 5,000 miles, or 8,000 kilometers. As a note, Cook had gotten to within 350 miles, or 560 kilometers, of Antarctica. Due to good weather and favorable winds, the Endeavour made excellent time across the Pacific, going as fast as seven knots on a regular basis. Also, the temperature rose. By March, it was above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, or 21 degrees Celsius. As the ship moved onward, the mood of the crew grew more anxious. Remember, there were men on the ship who had been to Tahiti, and they had, ad nauseum, told the tales of the beauty of the women and their willingness to grant sexual favors for a simple nail or two. Thus the men waited, on edge, to get to this paradise they'd been told about. Now I do want to mention one incident that would mar the expedition and took place during the Pacific crossing. I've talked briefly about the Royal Marines. These were tough men, often contemptuous of everyone else, and not afraid to show it. Well, amongst the Marine contingent was a youngster named William Greenslade. How Greenslade had become a Marine, I don't know, but he didn't fit the mold, he was sensitive and quiet, and thus he was preyed on and bullied relentlessly by his fellow soldiers. Anyhow, Greenslade just didn't fit in, and thus he was friendless. Even others on the ship, including Joseph Banks, had seen how horribly he was being treated. 
And then, one night, after a particularly cruel incident, Greenslade went to the edge of the ship and jumped overboard. The Marine commander, Sergeant John Edgecombe, didn't report his man missing until a half an hour later. Some have said that Edgecombe had seen Greenslade jump, but had waited to report it to ensure the ship wouldn't stop to search for him. If that's true, I don't know. No one had realized how badly Greenslade had been tormented by his fellow Marines. Banks had said the boy had been driven mad by his comrades, but he never thought Greenslade was suicidal. Edgecombe didn't appear to care about his fellow soldier's death. It was likely his way of weeding out the weak elements of his unit. As for Cook, he was horrified. He respected Sergeant Edgecombe, but such behavior was a terrible thing in his eyes. However, he could do little about the incident, since no one, especially the Marines, had anything to say about the matter. It is a reminder that life in an 18th century sailing ship was often a terrible drama, but that was to be expected when you cram 90-some-odd men into a small space and expect them to live with one another for months on end. No matter, the endeavor pushed west towards Tahiti. We should note that finding the island was not going to be that simple. Tahiti is only 33 by 16 miles in size, or 53 by 25 kilometers. Samuel Wallace's expedition had recorded the longitude and latitude of the island, but to be honest, they weren't that accurate. Latitude, which is the north-south location of a point, is relatively easy to calculate. You need the correct date and some easy-to-obtain astronomical measurements. From that, you can calculate your latitude. It's pretty simple and accurate. But longitude, the east-west point, is far more difficult. The critical thing you need is accurate time, and the clocks of Cook's age were just not that good. You could try, but it was dicey at best. Cook was aided by using lunar observations and having some skilled astronomers on board, but it was not perfect. He would be forced to change course several times during his Pacific voyage. As March came to a close, there were signs of land, including birds. And then, on April 4th, 1769, Peter Briscoe, one of Joseph Banks' servants, let out a shout. Land, the first to be seen in 66 days. Briscoe would get a bottle of rum as a reward for being the first to sight land. Now, this was not Tahiti, but Endeavour was getting close. Soon there were more islands, some with people, some with not. Cook resisted the urge to land, entirely focused on reaching Tahiti and getting prepared for the transit of Venus. And then on April 11th, from a distance, two volcanic mountains were sighted. Tahiti had been found. The next day, Endeavour would sail into Matavai Bay on the north coast of Tahiti. It was the same spot Wallace had been to two years earlier. Tahiti, which was called King George's Island by the English, was everything the men of Endeavour had dreamed it would be. Along with the mountains, which were as high as 7,300 feet, or 2,200 meters, there were crystal clear waters, black volcanic sand beaches, and lush green swaths of land. And there were people, including beautiful women, many with hardly any clothing on. To the men, many of whom had not been near a woman in seven months, this was paradise. Cook had prepared for this moment, having been warned by John Gore and the others that the women were beautiful and, quote, free with their favors, end quote. I do like how they just can't come out and say sex. Anyhow, Cook quickly gathered his men on deck and laid down the law. The men were to be fair when trading and interacting with the natives. They were to cultivate friendships, treat the people humanely, and refrain from provoking them. They were also cautioned not to give away things too freely, as it would debase the value of the expedition's trade goods. Cook also warned the men that there would be harsh penalties for anyone trading away ship's stores or gear, or for stealing any of the ship's trade goods. To the men, this message was awesome, because the thing they feared most was being confined to the ship, like they had been in Rio. And so Endeavour entered Matavai Bay, as canoes, some intricately decorated, swarmed out to the ship to greet the newcomers. 
Cook said these people were polite and civil and happy to see the British. They brought out coconuts, breadfruit, fish, and even apples. The men traded them nails, buttons, and beads. Artist Sidney Parkinson would say, quote, The people in the canoes were of a pale, tawny complexion and had long black hair. They seemed to be very good-natured and not of a covetous disposition. As for Cook, he would have to strike up good relations with the native people and then go about building an observatory so the details of the transit of Venus could be recorded by the scientists. The British had more than six weeks to get everything ready. But that story will be for next time. For now, we can be content knowing that Cook had gotten Endeavour to Tahiti in good shape and with plenty of time to prepare. The islanders were happy to welcome the British, and the men of Endeavour were happy to see the Tahitians. Next time, we will cover Cook's time in Tahiti, including the transit of Venus, plus his explorations of the neighboring islands. We will then get him going on his search for the legendary continent of Terra Australis. That is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us next time as we continue the story of the legendary James Cook. Thank you for listening. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows, including Legends of the West and Monster Talk.